Welcome to this episode of Beaverpod, the clinical catch-ups. The following session was recorded live during the Beaver Clinical Catch-ups webinars. For the full webinar experience, Beaver members can find past sessions online via the Beaver website. Hello everybody, nice to see a lot, lot of people here, it's great. Laminitis is obviously a very popular subject <laughs> and one that I see a lot of. Um, so yeah, being an ambulatory vet, um, it's, it's one of the most common, common sort of, you know, endocrine presentations that I come across is when they are actually in laminitic phase. Um, so first of all, I'm just going to run through really a sort of typical case from start to finish and, and highlight the kind of major issues or the certainly the obstacles and stumbling blocks that I find as a sort of first opinion vet. The first one being the owner recognition. That's a, a really big one for me. Um, I think it's it's not unusual for us to come across these cases and the actual, I mean, the client might know the pony's laminitic or the horse is laminitic, but it's also not uncommon to come across them saying, you know, he's a bit footy or he's a bit lazy or, you know, he's a bit lame on the turn. You know, there is a kind of lack of awareness as to what is actually going on here. And even those that have had laminitics in the past or know their pony is laminitic, they perhaps sometimes don't realise the severity of the situation, um, despite the horse quite clearly looking extremely uncomfortable. Um, oh, got a mouse problem here. It's not letting me skip through. Two seconds, guys. No. Oh. <laughs> Won't let me move my slides on. Hang on two seconds. If you go down to the bottom left-hand corner on the screen, some, you should get some arrows come up. It may just yeah. be because we've got some people joining again. I think, yeah, I think it's just an overload thing because it keeps flashing my mouse up. Yeah, it doesn't like it. Hang on. Oh. There you go. Yeah, right. We're back in the game. All right. So, yeah, the first thing is, you know, what is actually going on here? Um, you know, why have we got the laminitis? Why have we got this presentation? We've obviously got the inflammatory toxic and mechanical overload versions, but we're not going to cover those today. We're going to concentrate on the metabolic ones um, and the most common ones being PPID, Cushing's, and then the equine metabolic syndrome, um, which, you know, has a genetic and an obesity um, component to that. So, same issue. <laughs> there we go. So case approach wise, the first thing I do is is go through the history because, you know, quite critically, is this a, 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 the first time this horse has suffered? Have we got, um, you know, recurrent laminitis? Have we got a horse that's already been diagnosed with something and under treatment? Have we got a horse that's, you know, maybe been chronically laminitis and the owner just hasn't? picked up on that and or the and or the farrier hasn't so go through a history really really carefully um discuss and assess the kind of body condition and the nutrition and the management of this horse i have a really good look at the feet and the farriery um, you know it's not uncommon to find that some of these horses aren't aren't trimmed or shod as well as they can be and sometimes that mechanical bit has sort of been a component and tipped them over the edge as well 
certainly made them sort of more more painful perhaps in their laminitic episode than they they might have been otherwise and then it's a really case of, of thinking about diagnostic testing you know what to do and when and that's something that Kathy's going to give us a really good uh, insight into afterwards x-rays obviously in an ideal world every laminitic would be x-rayed but it's not uncommon in my caseload and my you know horse owning population that they just can't afford x-rays it's just not an option unless you know we're entering dire straits and need to decide that this horse is too far gone. So x-rays sometimes, um, you know, a bonus really, which is which is unfortunate to say, but it's it's the way it is in the real world. But ideally we get them. Um, and then obviously we move on to treatment and management and discuss that in depth with the owner. So the owner, going back to them, is a massive factor. Um, you know, I often think that clinical cases of laminitis are fairly straightforward until you get to the hurdles and the and the obstacles put in there by the owner. So one is obviously ignorance. You know, do they even understand laminitis? Do they know what it means? Um, do they understand what causes it? Um, are they able to recognize it in their own horse and recognize the severity of the laminitis that their horse is currently suffering or has previously suffered? Um, what's their previous experience with laminitis and whether it's with this particular horse or, or others, um, you know, what's that you kind of get a, always a, an idea, I think, when you're talking to them about how they're going to sort of take the kind of welfare part of this, you know, how what's their opinion, if their horse is laying down in the stable and unable to get up, some owners are sort of mortified by that and others are kind of, yeah, you know, he can't stand up or he can't walk and they kind of don't seem to perhaps be quite as, um, affected by by the the sort of welfare case that's in front of them, and it's something I try and you know emphasise. If I get the impression this owner doesn't quite understand that the welfare implications of this, I try and drum that home very early on. You know, I'm not afraid to um, to be quite harsh in, in a nice way, I hope, but 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 very to the point about what is going on here and what we are undertaking as a case from the welfare and ethical point of view. Um, I try and really educate them about the degree of pain these horses can be in, um, you know, try and help them understand their role in that, you know, particularly if there's weight issues um, or other management issues, you know, I try to not sugar the pill too much because I think you you do sort of run the risk, therefore, of those people not taking it seriously. But every owner and every person, every situation is different. So it does require a little bit of, you know, skill to, to, to know when and how far to push those things. Um, but once you've got them on board and they're accepting and understanding what it is you're telling them, then it's really important to drum home how their commitment and their compliance is absolutely paramount to getting these horses right. You know, we can do our best clinically, but if they are not sticking to what's required for this animal, then we are in for a seriously long road with, with a very, very minimal chance of success for that animal. And, you know, I am much more, as I get older and <laughs> see more cases, of the opinion that, you know, if, if we are if we're not committed and we're not going to be compliant from an owner perspective, then that horse is much better off actually being euthanized on welfare grounds than it is being put through the, the recovery and the management stuff if it's not going to be done appropriately. Um, and then there clearly is the financial factor as well. You know, it's not a cheap thing to do to treat, manage and long term manage these horses. You know, we've got to be realistic about that. They are going to require quite intensive care at times. And obviously the owner needs to be really on the ball and have a lot of veterinary support in order to manage these horses going forwards. 
So then the horse sort of factors would be the obvious ones that we all know about, like age, breed, sort of size, coming in with the breed thing would be the size of the horse. It's, you know, PPID status, again, which Kathy will talk about, it's EMS status. Um, what's its current exercise or existing previous exercise sort of normal normal state like um is that sufficient is this horse something that needs to you know should in theory be exercised more is the laminitis now going to affect it, the expectations of the owner you know does this owner want to go and do quite a lot of athletic work with this horse and actually that might not be possible after we've even got over this initial laminitic episode and then we've got to assess the foot confirmation of farriery side of things and obviously we're bringing in another person into the equation now you know is it a good farrier? Let's be blunt about this. Is it a good farrier that's looked after these feet well? Have we got good, you know, confirmation of the foot? Um, you know, have we already got evidence of this being a chronic case, such as, you know, the sole convexity or coronary band changes or the obvious divergent growth ring um, evidence? So going forward from the acute case, um, you know, the farrier has to be able to shoe and trim this horse um, well, and that's got to be, you know, that's a skill in itself. Um, you know, they've got to be open to suggestion and working as a team in, in terms of changing things. Um, also, what options have we got available to us? You know, how how skilled is this farrier? Is he able to do some of this fancy shoeing that, you know, it's, it's all very well trying it, but you've got to be good at doing the fancy shoeing and trimming as well. And is the owner, you know, okay with the fact that this shoeing cycle is going to have to be shortened and the, the horse will have to be seen on a more regular basis than it may have done pro, like pro, previously. Um, and I also try my best to look at this as a very holistic way, you know, what's the facilities and the management like for this, for this horse and this individual, you know, it's not uncommon that I would advise a, an owner maybe has to move yards um, to manage this horse going forwards. It's no good at being at a livery yard where there is no option to manage its dietary needs or its exercise needs or it's, you know, the stabling, the box rest. Um, they've got to be um, very clear about how this horse is going to be managed through an acute phase and how it's going to be managed beyond that. Um, so, you know, stabling, bedding, turnout areas, you know, non-grass turnout areas or versus grass areas and, you know, having companions, you know, one thing I worry about with some of these ponies is they get locked up for life in these kind of really depressing um, turnout areas with no no sort of stimulation, no friends, nothing, nothing to eat. You know, that's not a good quality of life. And we need to take that into account as well when talking to the owners from the word go. And then there is the obvious thing about the vet. And, you know, we've all got to um, do a bit of navel gazing in this sense that our experience with laminitis uh, is 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 a massive factor here. And I think we'll all admit that perhaps early on in our careers, we maybe saw them in a different way that we might do later on in our careers. And, and how we sort of perceive the pain and the welfare limitations is a huge thing. I mean, one vet might be very quick to put a horse to sleep on welfare grounds from a, from a laminitic episode versus you might get others that are much more pursuant of success and you know will will really go down every route possible um, for a very long time uh, with that horse tolerating high degrees of pain and discomfort um, perhaps just in the you know pursuit of of, of of a small chance of success so we all do have to look at that and look at ourselves and, and reflect I think so just a very quick run over because we probably know most of this and it hasn't changed much, but the initial medical treatment is obviously pain relief. Um, and we have the, the usual butes, paracetamol, tramadol, gabapentin sort of array there. Um, I tend to use them in sort of increasing um, order there like that. And then the anti-inflammatory 
effect of bute is obviously there plus some cold therapy. Um, ACP or sedlin is, is still recommended for vasodilatation by, by many. Um, and then, as I say, with all those things on board, we have to be constantly looking at the quality of life. You know, is this sufficient to keep this horse comfortable and are we making progress in the right direction? And then on top of that, you know, as I mentioned before, the x-rays and the farriery, we need to really be able to communicate with the farrier if it is the, the current farrier that's going to continue to, to shoe and or trim this horse we need to be able to get a really good relationship with them because this horse needs a lot of um sort of you know guidance or, or the farrier will need a lot of guidance from us and a lot of teamwork from both of us working together to try and get this horse's feet in an appropriate state for it to recover and hopefully prevent any mechanical um, influence on, on any further episodes or recovery of that laminitis. So addressing the underlying disease is, is obviously the, the big thing that we, we are going to be looking at. Um, so the, whether we've got Cushing's and we need to put this on pergolide, whether we've got metabolic syndrome, you know, the, there are medications for that. There's obviously the dietary adjustments where required. And, you know, in terms of obesity management, you know, that's becoming quite a hot topic. But, you know, if we simplify it down, you know, it's a case of really assessing um, fat deposits and accepting that, you know, there is a huge amount of internal fat as well, which is needs to be explained to the owners. Understanding body condition scoring or whatever system it is that you believe is best um, used to translate that to the, the, the owner that you're standing in front of. And then monitoring them and staying engaged with them, trying to sort of almost counsel the owners really through the quite difficult bit of feeding um, these horses and doing sort of dietary management and calorie calorie limiting. Um, and also once we're through that initial acute stage of laminitis, you know, what we do exercise wise going forward. And I think a really good one that I've, you know, definitely used more and more of now is the is the idea of taking rugs off and clipping these horses in the colder months to try and help um, control their weight and try and encourage that weight loss through the winter. Supplements are very trendy. I've joined a lot of the laminitis and, and metabolic syndrome Facebook groups, which has been quite an eye opener to see what the owners are banding around on those. Um, you know, there's the obvious things like biotin to help with the hoof quality and the horn growth and things like that. But um, there's other things being talked about. So chromium, magnesium, and, and most recently I've seen cinnamon cropping up a lot on those groups. So um, people are sort of getting interested in different things. Uh, but for consideration or routine use, I think is quite a, an important thing. I personally don't use a lot of metformin. Well, I don't use any metformin, actually. Um, I, I haven't used much levothyroxine, although I consider it sometimes. And, and certainly I do wonder whether I'm underusing. Who knows? But there's some newer ones coming out, um, which are the sodium glucose linked co-transport 2 inhibitors, one of which is sort of undergoing a little bit of um, investigative work to see if it's suitable for horses, which is, a bit, I can't even pronounce it, Valagloflozin. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the right one. Um, and then pergolide, as, I, as I've mentioned before. So, yeah, the next bit really, which is what Cathy is going to take us through that path, is the kind of the idea of the diagnostic testing, utilising it for diagnosis and for monitoring, 
um, and you know how good it is at guiding us through the process really of not just sort of predicting things but preempting things as well through the cases that we're that we're seeing and the importance of teamwork I mean that was just the reason to put this slide in is to make sure that you're working together with the vets in your practice but also with the farriers and you know potentially nutritionists where appropriate and make sure you keep a really open dialogue with these owners you know keep keep in contact with them keep checking up and seeing how they're getting on with these things you know they do need lots of support because it is very hard work looking after these laminated courses and trying to prevent it happening again and that is it from me hopefully a bit of a whirlwind um, trip but but enough time now to hand over to Kathy thank you lucy and while we're changing over i just thought i'd explain where we're coming from in this clinical club i hope that we're going to attract some interaction so obviously to explain any diagnostic process and do an electron diagnosis of ppid and ems takes some time so instead i thought um actually what what i might do is is be a little bit more controversial and fun and hopefully uh i will um hang on, get onto a, power, uh, um, a slide mode, but hopefully I'll encourage some questions and um, hopefully I will uh, raise, well, actually, uh, although I say I'm being controversial, I'm being controversial for a reason, which is actually to hopefully try to simplify um, some of the endocrinolo endocrinological aspects. There's a lot of research coming out and there's sometimes you see us experts arguing. I think that doesn't help you guys. I wanna try to sort of put forward some of the ways that you can find your way through that, put it that way. And thank you very much, Lucy, for doing the overview because she's given you the context, the whole picture. And I'm just gonna pick a few bits a little bit, I guess, somewhat randomly. So I'll start off with what's new. And it was interesting, we had the Global Equine Endocrinology Symposium about this time last year. And uh, it was January, a couple of months ago. Time flies when you're having fun. But there were two really interesting take-home messages. One is that don't forget laminitis, irrespective of the endocrine disease, is associated with the underlying insulin dysregulation. So when we're only thinking about laminitis, actually, it's the insulin dysregulation you should be focusing on, not, ne not necessarily that it's PPID or EMS, but still with regards to long-term management, as Lucy was talking about, you need to be able to separate PPID and EMS very clearly and make sure that clients understand. I think some of the setback is that if it's a little woolly, a little vague as to what's associated with what, then clients can get confused and get on the forums and upset Lucy. So... <laughs> Then I was going to talk a little bit about diagnosis directions. Obviously, uh, we need to differentiate the disease process, which is, of course, differentiating PPID and EMS, as I've just said, was one of the new factors, and determine the laminitis risk. And they're not one and the same thing. They're two different things. So I think that's just a really important take-home message, I guess. And then thirdly, um, to ensure that we're still using endocrine tests to, um, <laughs> we'll go through those questions later. I can see some of the questions there, but I'm not gonna do that while I'm talking. Lucy, you can maybe answer those, but um, great questions. Um, to ensure that we're also talking about uh, testing during the monitoring process and during the treatment process to really guide that treatment, as Lucy said. So we're talking about these two diseases. Some of them are really obviously different. Some of them aren't. So let's talk about diagnosis of PPID. 
So my first little controversial statement is, what's wrong with basal ACTH? And my answer is absolutely nothing. So you don't need to be reaching for the TRH, or which we could talk about cascade later. I was thinking about that when you're talking about levothyroxine, Lucy, but we'll, we'll leave that for a question. So just remember when you're testing using basal ACTH, that it has a better specificity. So you go, oh my God, she's already gotten into epidemiological terminology. But what that means is a positive is rarely going to be wrong. Okay, so think about that and I'll get onto that in the next slide. And the next point is cutoffs. Now I took the cutoffs out of the lecture and we can always get, bring up that, but just think about what you want to achieve. achieve. And Andy Durham and, and, and colleagues actually published a really nice paper just last year on um, two types of diagnostic thresholds, whether or not they want to rule in PPID. So you've got a horse with clinical signs, you rule it in, you're going to use much lower cutoffs than if you want to rule it out. You've got the owner that's presented their top level show jumper that's in absolute spick and span condition. There's no way it's got a clinical sign of PPID. Well, you're going to use a higher cutoff on that, particularly if he's stressed. Um, because the owner brought it in for a PPID test in the first place. Anyway, let's go back to this key point written in red. I apologize. I feel like I'm becoming like my old Professor Derek Nuttenbelt. But anyway, you are far more likely to miss a PPID case using basal ACTH than overdiagnose one. What? <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk that it's been overdiagnosed. I'm sorry, but the prevalence is really high. It's one in five in horses 15 years and older. So it's gonna be regularly diagnosed. Unless it's stressed, I've got a couple of pictures there, which I hope you can see. If you're, um, I can't see because everybody's pictures is in the way, but if, you're, if you've chased it around the yard, now this was a pony I was trying to blood test. I've got some other blurry pictures when he was running fast towards me, but we won't go there. If that's the candidate, don't use ACTH. It is a stress hormone. It will be ruined if you've chased the pony around the yard or if it's sick. However, ACTH has got a short half-life. If it's raced around like a lunatic, do it the next day or even in the afternoon. If it's sick, usually they're better in about four days. And you're much more likely to miss a case than overdiagnose one, especially if you choose horses that already have PPID signs. That's just the way the world works. If they're hirsute, if they're laminitic, if they've got PUPD, then you're much, you're really, really unlikely to overdiagnose them, provided you didn't throttle them and, and take them to the ground. Okay, so again, uh, you're far more likely to miss a case and overdiagnose them. So what about missing them? Is, is this a disaster? Oh my goodness, I'm using basal ACTH and I could miss some. Now, you know, the sensitivity is only 80%. So you could miss quite a few. Well, PPID diagnosis is not an emergency. And don't forget the part of it that is an emergency is the laminitis. So let's just focus on getting, focus our diagnostic tests on the underlying cause of laminitis or insulin dysregulation and go back and test for PPID later if you're not confident with the test, if it doesn't fit with your clinical signs, if you can't get the insulin dysregulation under control, various reasons. But PPID diagnosis is not an emergency, but laminitis certainly can be, as Lucy's explained nicely. So, um, oh, this is really annoying. Um, 
testing for insulin dysregulation. And basically insulin dysregulation, the primary hallmark is hyperinsulinemia. So it is what it is on the tin. So it's not really rocket science as how to test for it, is it? You just got to measure high insulin. But then there's a couple of questions I thought I'd raise. And I have heard these and you may or may not have these questions, but I thought I'd raise them anyway. If it's simply related to obesity, why not just put them all on a diet and skip the blood tests? Or I've been told by experts um, that I can't test just using basal insulin anymore. And my, my the clients don't want to do the test. They don't want to starve the pony. They don't want to go through the rigmarole of feeding a flake of hay the previous night and all this sort of detail. How do we make it simple and uh, or, or not too simple that we'd skip them at all and skip them entirely? And to sort of answer those questions, the first question about the obesity, uh, who wants to manage just about every pony on your books uh, with intensive caloric restriction? I suspect most of you do not because most of the ponies on your books probably will be obese. Who wants to keep their clients happy? And let's keep the endocrine testing simple and informative and make them um, have happy little ponies. And to keep it simple and informative, you need to tailor it to the circumstances and the client. And we can discuss this. So why are we testing? We want to determine the degree of insulin dysregulation and we want to monitor the response to therapy. And I think with any test, PPID, you wanna know if they've got it or not, and you wanna know if you're ruling it in or ruling it out, that's easy. The questions for insulin dysregulation might be a little bit different. And I got three here. And I think they're the three most important questions you want to think about. So you're going to test because you want to know how likely or imminent laminitis is in that fat pony that you've seen that has or hasn't had laminitis before. You want to know how strict you're going to have to be with the diet. There is no such thing as one diet fits all. Some ponies you'll send off and say, look, I know he's had a bad of laminitis. We've recovered. You've done really well just on a few weeks of soaked hay. Um, let's, you know, let's just focus on winter weight loss or let's just add a bit of straw into the diet. Let's, let's just, you know, give him a grazing muzzle during the day or something like that. Whereas, and that'll keep the owner very, very happy. Whereas other ponies, they're probably never going to be able to see a lick of grass for some time until you can get them under control. So that it's a very important question to be able to tailor um, your response with the, with the client. If you try to give them a one size fits all, they're not going to be happy. And thirdly, going on to monitoring, is this diet appropriate? Um, some of you will have seen this slide before I've given it before, but my point is you can't predict insulin dysregulation from the phenotype. They're not all just fat ponies. Some fat ponies, this little pony pickles um, was actually the most insulin sensitive animal I've ever tested. <laughs> you started getting hyperglycemic uh, reaction, as you can probably tell from his response uh, during his CGIT test and shaking and luckily responded very well to a mouthful of food. But oh, oh my goodness, what's wrong with pickles? And this is one of the obviously much more insulin dysregulated animals that we've seen as well um, under the care of her owner. Anyway, so my next point, so first take home point, well, first take home point is differentiate the two and know what you're testing for. Is it laminitis risk or is it the two diseases? The next take home point is ask the question when you're testing, what are you testing for? Rolling it in, rolling it out for PPID 
or for um, uh, insulin dysregulation, are you testing to know laminitis risk, monitoring risk, or the type of dietary intervention you need to have? So in order to answer these questions and to go back, just, just to make sure that you're always not getting confused with the whole complex picture of endocrinology, which is really not that complex at all, you can actually put the whole thing into one small flow chart. And this is what I like to show this, and people might have seen it before, but we have a genetic predisposition, as Lucy's already said. You can add obesity into the, into the um, equation with the EMS cases, and they'll go straight down this line here, or with the PPID cases, they'll come straight down this line. So there's obviously two ways of going in there, I guess. Then they'll get insulin resistance or insulin dysregulation. But in order for those animals to get laminitis or lamella lesions in their hooves, you've got to add carbohydrates into the mix. So you can't have just genetic predisposition. You can't just have insulin resistance. You've got to have um, drivers to get to this point of hyperinsulinemia. I said it's a no-brainer that that's the, you know, it is what it says on the tin, but that's what's driving the, the laminitis. So of course, that's what you're going to want to test for. Right. So how do we test for it? First line, basal insulin. Um, you'll say I've got non-fasting, it's on the next slide, or we can still use dynamic tests. Now I know I have seen, heard a lot of vets. Some of you are, are really slick and, you know, I've, I've heard vets say that they're using the carrot test before they do intra-articular corticosteroids. Fantastic if you've got it slick, but if you're out there on a budget yard with a few ponies that haven't even had farrier care for some weeks they're really balking at paying you know just to a single a single insulin and interpret it on the basis of what situation it was you don't have to fast them at all and i'll go through that in just a second that's my point so what's wrong with basal insulin Nothing, it's just the ability of people to interpret it. Now, the first problem that happened with basal insulin was the original ACVM consensus, which has been rewritten in 2019, where the insulin cutoff was based on the original research by various people in the United States using British breed ponies, but um, where they just pulled them off grass and tested them, pulled them off 100% pasture. There was no fasting, no feeding a flake of hay, no cranky owners, no stabling. They pulled them off the field, put them in a yard, took the sample as long as it took them to get it. And that's what they found the cutoff was. It was actually 14, but we won't go there. They raised it to 20 just to give a little bit of a fudge factor. So that's very high. If you fast a horse, your cutoff will go down to about three. So <laughs> The, the, this is where we've had the problem. So people have used 20, I bet you've all got 20 in your head, great. As long as they've come off pasture, ad lib, or low non-structural carbohydrate, ad lib. So you, rec you sample while they're eating, either an ad lib forage, if possible, low NSC, but whatever. No bolus meal, you know, don't, don't do it un unless you want to. And we'll get to that in a second. You might actually, if you're answering question three, how well am I going with my treatment? You might actually want to, to measure two hours after the horse has had its breakfast. I hope I haven't confused issues, but there's nothing wrong with basal insulin. It's the ability of people to interpret it that's the problem. Oh, I had this in oral caro or glucose. I won't go into that. Basically, the original dose of caro was just very small. And the difference between the one gram per kilo of glucose, these are the exact same ponies, by the way. This is Harry's research, Harry Karsleg, is um, that the 
0.15 of caro was actually really quite a small glycemic uh, load. And so now that we've gone to 0.45, it's probably better. I wouldn't recommend 0.1. Well, you can, you will see, it's just not as easy when it's small. Adiponectin, well, I'm not gonna dwell on that. I think the ponies say it all. Why use an indirect marker when insulin is direct, cheap and validated? Right, so I'm gonna move on now to, <laughs> to, to, to treatment. And I just left this one slide in for dietary aims of treatment. The reason why is just to sort of focus on why you might use insulin in the, in the monitoring of treatment of these ponies. And I really don't think you should just say, I can see his external body condition score well done. I do think it's really important because as I said, you get some horses that'll eat, you know, a bucket of happy hoof and have an insulin of 500 and you'll have the others that'll eat a bucket of happy hoof and have an insulin of 15. And you know, both of them could have had laminitis. Anyway, when we're talking about management of insulin dysregulation, particularly EMS, but probably put PPID into this category as well. I have to move my picture down. Just remember there's three phases. You've got the immediate phase, which is when you see a bout of laminitis that Lucy's talking about, where you're just going to want to not worry about too much except for dropping that glucose out and the insulinemic response straight away. So you're going to feed soaked hay, straw, or low glycemic chaffs, you know. In the medium term, that's your immediate, so that's the laminitic bout, that's the two weeks of soaked hay that I'm sure you all do. Medium term is when you start to induce weight loss with dietary restriction. And that will depend on how severe your original testing was. Was his insulin 1,000? Was his insulin 20? Both of them positive. And in the long term, you're going to reduce, you're not going to dietary restrict them for the rest of their lives. Hopefully you will induce weight loss. And then because they're prone to laminitis, you want to make sure that they stay on a diet that doesn't have high carbohydrate-induced hyperinsulinemia. That's like I said in that background point. Right. I've gone, I think I've had just about enough time now. So monitoring is not the same as diagnosis. Um, I think that's important. And so, as I said before, just ask yourself what you want to, what you want to answer. Is this horse's diet appropriate? Is turning this horse out to pasture dangerous? Is he well, is he's, is he well controlled? So that's where you can use insulin monitoring post-feeding. Do what we do with the, it's a di you don't have to repeat the diagnostic test to monitor the animal. Why not take the sample two hours after he's had his breakfast and see how high that insulin is? The peak is approximately two hours from forage. Um, I'll show you this is three different forages, which is part of Harry's PhD. These horses were fasted and given just a flake of either hay soaked hay or haylage. The reason why it looks weird is because we use the same scale in the 100 going across there. Haylage does cause much more uh, insulinemic response, but you can see 120 minutes, we get a peak in, in insulin. Great. You don't have to say hay, but that's good to know. If that's the diet the horse is on and it doesn't have a peak of insulin, he's well controlled. And if it's got a peak like that, then it's clearly not. You can use it to guide when a horse can go back onto pasture or any mitigating factors you might have like a muzzle if the horse is going out onto pasture and uh, and this is Angel one of our teaching horses some of you will have seen this as well and just to say we've put 
put my money where my mouth is. Oh, actually, yeah, I've shown you these dynamic tests, but this is also the basal insulin here, and they're very markedly different. So you didn't need to do the, the, the dynamic test post intravenous glucose. We could have just done basal insulin, and it was a dramatic drop. And uh, she was very happy about that, going back onto pasture. So my take home message is use of endocrine metrics in managing laminitis can be extremely valuable. Um, differentiate PPID and EMS, get a measure of the degree of insulin dysregulation and your immediate laminitis risk and use your insulin dysregulation to answer questions during monitoring and management. Don't overcomplicate the issue with the clients or with anybody else. It's not that complicated. Don't forget the core principles and the role of hyperinsulinemia and ask yourself the question, what do I want to achieve? Thank you. <laughs> right. That's brilliant. Thank you, Kathy. Um, so yeah, it's insulin, insulin, insulin. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get in my head around. <laughs> just, just do a lot of insulin testing. But we've got a couple of good questions, actually. I've tried to answer some of the ones that I can. Um, but there's a couple I think that are good for you. One is the question about cold induced or winter laminitis. So Ooh. someone's brought this up and I thought your answer to me when I asked oh, you this I question was excellent. So do you want to <laughs> do you want to answer that? That would be fantastic. Okay, sure. Sure, I will, but actually I have a picture of this. Sorry, ignore this. These are all these are all questions you can might look at this. Cold induced laminitis, really. Do you like that one? <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so I think there's two reasons. Now, this is a pony owned by Heli Hutian, our physiotherapist who comes and teaches at Liverpool. And uh, this is her pony, and he's out in the field in Finland. It's probably, oh, it's probably only about minus 10. It's quite a nice day there. And um, he's in the field. The snow's deep. He's not foraging. But look how long his hair coat is. Look how happy he is. And he's not, she's not worried about cold-induced laminitis. There's, I, as far as I can see, there's two reasons. One is reduced activity i have another picture of this pony i was actually looking for it. i couldn't find it this afternoon but anyway she she exercises this pony and he's out on the road with his little reflective boots on because she's um she's ponying him with another horse and you know, leading him off another horse and because he's only little really quite little um so the two reasons i think are reduced exercise i actually did a third year student pro project and i'm sad to say i haven't published it yet and and um i believe that um owen's now finishing his internship at Rainbow Equine, but we won't go there, um, where he monitored the activity of horses during the winter in a normal livery yard. And these were horses, not ponies. And the activity was really small. It was shockingly small. Even when they were out, they were really moving very little. So it's reduced activity. The owners feel cold, so they forget the thermoneutral zone of a horse is about minus five to plus five degrees Celsius. So they give it extra clothing. They don't flip it like Lucy suggested. And then they give it a bit of extra food as well. So that's um, not cold-induced laminitis per se, but it's definitely winter-induced laminitis. And I do believe, though, there could be potentially some horses that could get stressed. So they'd have to be induced laminitis. So stress is gluconeogenic. You're going to produce glucose. You're going to get an insulinemic response. And that could tip a horse that's very, very on the borderline just like PPID does to an EMS horse into getting a bout of laminitis. But as I said, with the thermoneutral zone, it'd have to be wet through in a wind tunnel and <laughs> clipped <laughs> or somehow otherwise stressed. Maybe those 
matching pink booties and um, head collars might make them stressed, but something that makes them stressed to, to do that. So that's my answer to that question. Sorry. And that leads, no, that's brilliant. And that leads on to one of the other questions, which is sort of linked, I suppose. Um, does cortisol not play a role in PPID induced laminitis? I've clearly gotten mixed up somewhere. What's your answer uh, to that one? Yeah, uh, I guess the answer is nobody. Uh, the, I guess the key, the simple answer is no, it's insulin that plays the role. It's not the cortisol. So you can do whatever you like with systemic cortisol and it won't play a role. Whether or not it plays a role locally, let's just leave that to the experts. You know, Ruth Morgan's doing some lovely research on local cortisol metabolites that are, you know, leave that. Not directly and not measurably. Cortisol probably has a role in inducing a degree of insulin dysregulation. I believe that at least. In other words, it probably causes insulin dysregulation in the first place, but it's probably not the cortisol that you're thinking of, not the normal measured um, total cortisol of, you know, that, that you would measure in the blood. It's probably due to a local cortisol. Um, uh, what else was I going to say about cortisol? But anyway, that's the main thing. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a direct cause and, and uh, you won't, oh, that's what I was going to say. I do believe that there is something about PPID and the PPID metabolites that make insulin dysregulation worse. And I presented a little paper actually at this GEES um, symposium, where if you look at the insulin at the beginning, middle and end of a nine month dietary management program, if they've got EMS plus PPID, they were, well, we looked at about 20 horses in each group, they were by far worse than the horses with just EMS. So I think PPID really is whatever those pro-opio, melanocortin peptides are, they are worsening it, but it's not just a straight cortisol thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a brilliant answer. That's just what you need to know. And, and, and on the, well, not on the back of that, but there's a, there's another similar question, which is when you're trying to test for PPID, yep. what do you do in a horse that's for this this example that the person gave was in chronic renal failure a horse that's sick chronic renal, failure, yeah. re renal failure particularly but yeah sick horses chronic renal failure how do you approach testing for ppid so that with that just remember cortisol i mean so acth got me on cortisol now acth is, is a very short acting hormone and there's some studies done by towns et al but it doesn't matter who did it i think um alison stewart did some of it as well she's in queensland so basically, even if they're really quite ill, after four days, the ACTH dropped back down to normal. So I'd probably, with a horse with renal failure, I'd just make sure he hadn't changed. You know, chronic renal failure, you're going to see these cases. Make sure he hasn't changed or had a worsening bout or gotten dehydrated in the last week and then test him when he's stable. Same with laminitic pain. Wait till the pain's stable. They might not recover from that bout of laminitis for six months. You know, it might be a long time. So wait till they're stable and nothing's really changed for at least four days. And that was probably the easiest way of doing it. I probably would always maybe give them 10 or 20 above baseline, but I would never, you know, I would never um, above the, well, the reference interval I used at that time of the or week of the year. Now, Andy's so um, accurate, but um, 
yeah I would be quite happy once they were stable stable yeah for a few days stable yeah. um, I'm going to go in order of the questions otherwise I'll probably lose track but there's another one here that's um, should you be worried about too drastically restricting the diet in an acute laminitic so yeah. a horse that's in acute yeah. laminitis yeah exactly that's why I said the first stage is not to suddenly you know starve the poor animal it is actually to um to reduce the glycemic response to the feed so when we come here immediate is reduction of the glycemic and insulinemic response to feed in that first two weeks the last thing you want to do is make the poor thing more stressed stress is gluconeogenic it will and insulin and insulin resistance causing so don't stress the poor little animal it's just his feet have just started to hurt like anything so soak the hay but don't starve him you know there's no rush you don't have to put him on a diet in the first two weeks you just need to take the glucose out um, and if you or well, the insulinemic response out and look at look at this response these are harry's ponies the horses in red have ems the horses in blue are normal look at the insulinemic response to soaked hay it is pitiful i mean obviously that was only a flake so maybe it might be up to 40 if they gorged a lot of it but put them on a low glycemic food and don't starve them and don't stress them I absolutely i think that's a really good point and i think what is what how you interpret the word restrictive diet isn't it because i think people people who go starving their horses for several hours at a time uh, you know in, in an attempt to diet them that that's not obviously no, as you've that's alluded to, that's not sensible and that's not going to help the horse in the slightest. But giving them, I've, I've become a real fan of the straw thing. So soaked yeah. hay and straw. So they are trickle grazing, trickle, you know, trickle feeding on soaked hay and straw through through the day and the night mm. is a, is an acceptable way to manage these ponies, I guess, isn't it? And making sure they get their balancer and stuff as their, Absolutely. you know, for their, for their nutrients or vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's how you interpret Starvation the Starvation actually induces... Starvation as yeah. well actually so you should never do it and, and don't starve um, them ruth, don't starve them and ruth actually presented some really nice data where all she did in a group of ponies because they this was a low budget sort of um thing to, to basically she was trying to see what cheapest mm -hmm. way of managing these things she just literally substituted half the hay for straw and they all had um really nice responses so yeah yeah, I think we shouldn't be too afraid of straw. I really no, do. I agree. I think straw is a very overlooked um, tool, actually, in our toolkit for this sort of stuff, isn't it? And they forage you know, the, one, it. the one thing I, I always tell people to do if they're going to start using straw is to just make sure they wash it or soak it because straw can be dusty, right? So, and a lot of these ponies can have respiratory issues and or they're locked up in their box, for instance, if they're really, really bad. So just make sure you wash it. That's what I say to mm -hmm. people. Um, uh, so the next question was, so do you advise to only test basal insulin when a laminitic horse is suspected of EMS? And what is the best moment to take the blood? Okay, so a laminitic horse is suspected of EMS, what is the best moment? That's, that's sort of, that's almost three questions really. So do I only advise basal insulin? No, that's why I actually presented all three because um, well, really, my point was, wait, I can't remember where I had it now. My, oh, here it is. Uh, my point was, is that actually dynamic tests for um, PPID, I think is really, I, I really don't do that. I actually don't. So that's just, I have done once or twice. I don't really like it. And now that we've got Protorolin in Europe and the new Cascade, we won't be able to use TRH medical grade from a scientific laboratory jar anyway but we won't go there so you can 
it just this is where I'm talking about judge your client if you're a low budget if your client is one of those low budget clients and they're not even you know they haven't seen the the farrier regularly and you know you haven't you know their teeth are looking really shocking and you think the ability of getting them to pay for anything is going to be difficult and I think the key thing there is make sure you have you you're not scared of using basal insulin I think or if you haven't you know to do the oral glucose test or the in particular, you have to have fasted them. If you want to just take a sample and see where you're at quickly, then just take it. Don't be afraid of just going ahead and taking that sample because it's convenient. You don't have to do anything special. You just have to, when you're interpreting it, take that into consideration. So let's say you're on a, a livery yard, um, a yard you go out there and the horses you've just had it on soaked hay it's been on box rest and you want to go and test for um, EMS now uh, the caveat there is in that case I probably would do a dynamic test because soaked hay does drop basal insulin actually fairly well within two weeks your basal insulin will come back into the normal range in most horses on soaked hay however if you're let's say you're in a, in a place in a livery yard and you've got a few fatties there and you're a bit worried about them and the clients are telling you that there's nothing to worry about and you say look I really and you've seen laminitic rings and the horse isn't in it hasn't had any massive bout of laminitis and you think actually this horse is getting laminitis just and it's on full-time pasture or full-time hay just take it then and there and do a basal if they're that kind of a client that you're trying to encourage them to do in the first place go ahead do a basal see where you're at if it's sort of 20 to, to 50, well, okay, it's got EMS, but it's probably not dire. If it's, you know, over 200, well, we know actually over 200, we're starting to get laminic lesions in the lamellae. So we know that from our experiments. So, you know, that makes a big difference. You know that that horse is actually not just at imminent risk of laminitis, he's actually got laminitic lesions occurring that at the time you took that lesion. And whether it was before or after meal doesn't really matter, does it? Because that's the situation the pony's in. If the pony's just eaten a, you know, a bucket feed with, you know, three scoops of straights, then of course it's going to have a glycinic <laughs> response. It's going to be difficult to interpret. But, you know, I don't think that's going to be the likely. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think, yeah, but very rarely are you going and taking these bloods directly after they've had a huge meal, are you? It's normally after they've been in the paddock or eating eating hay normally eating hay in the stable right that would be the most common scenario where you come and see these horses yeah. on a first opinion basis and don't panic oh he's eating hay oh my goodness okay good let's use the 20 cutoff because that's yeah fine, isn't it? just but your if, adjust your cutoff basically yeah. on the according to the situation if, yeah if it's a pony where if it's an animal horse or pony where they get an eight o'clock hay net and they've had nothing sort of for the last five hours before they got that and you think that they're eating that hay net pretty fast well i'd give them a little bit higher that's where you'd probably go all the way up to 50 um which is the sort of buffer zone if you think they've bulk fed a meal if they've bulk eaten a meal but otherwise you know if it's if they've had hay in the in the stable and it's lunchtime or something like that go for it just use 20 yeah yeah, good, good advice. The next question was, what length of time for soaking hay do you recommend, Kathy? This is this comes up a lot, I think, doesn't oh, it? Amongst... Seven, to seven, seven hours minimum and not more than 16. And yeah. in other words, the time I recommend to soak hay, because I've done this, I've actually got a picture of all my little soaked hay buckets. You put one, you put the hay, well, obviously the first day you have to put two in, but the each feed, 
you put the hay net, you put one hay net, you drain it and put it up and the other one you put in the bucket. It's very yeah. easy. So it's during the day, it's seven hours and during the night, it's 16. It's just the way it works. So <laughs> eight and 15, but basically whatever's convenient. Seven, um, we did some experiments and it was really Carolyn Argo. And the difference between seven and 16 is really not that much. No. It's just convenience. AM and PM, isn't it? Basically, just just do yeah. your soaking. Yeah, yeah. Put one twice in. a day. Make it easy for the owners. Yeah, you got, and I think that's the exact point. If you try to make this too complicated, you'll get no compliance and right. you're on a hiding to nowhere. It's better better that we're doing something. The one thing that also gets asked is hot water or cold water, which I think is probably not an important question, but it certainly is one that owners um, ask. What's your... Yeah, cold water. Cold. Just because of the um, hygiene factor. If you start putting mm. hot water in, you just wonder what's multiplying in that water. Mm. Um, I wouldn't put anything in, no, cold water. Just, leave just it. cold soaking, yeah, perfect, cold. yeah. And don't worry about the effluent. Did anybody ask about that? Oh. No, no nitrogen. That's been shown. They don't lose nitrogen with soaking. Oh, interesting. There you yeah, go. They lose sugar and salt. Sugar and salt. There you go, everybody. Why well, you have to balance them <laughs> and put it in. It's water-soluble stuff. It makes sense, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, yeah that's what you that. And not just a balancer. No balancers have salts in them. Remember that you got to give them the salt separately from the balance. So look at the look at the packet. There's no sodium, magnesium, fluoride, potassium. Um, what else did I say? Uh, phosphorus. All of those things. You know, it'll be in your your foal growth balance of things, or your or your racehorse scoops. They're they're great. If you're if you're in racetrack practice, use one of those. They're really oh well, they've actually got too much sugar in them. But, um, <laughs> pick one without sugar in them. Does but, the stud does the stud balancer then have it in, for instance? Would a stud balancer does, but it's normally more calcium and phosphorus. So you usually won't have the salt in it. So you could use oh. stud balancer and a salt lick, but just be careful of the sugar. A lot of them, like your racehorse mixes, will have a lot of sugar in them. A lot of sugar so, in, yeah. yeah. Really, if if don't worry as much about calcium, phosphorus, um, and the other water soluble minerals, I probably would focus on salt. So even if you just gave them a salt block and maybe some yeah. a tablespoon of light salt in their food, that's probably fine. That's good knowledge. Yeah, I like that. That's nice and easy to, to implement, isn't it? When you next question is when you introduce aspirin and ACP to keep your laminitic course comfortable, what dose do you use and how quickly do you build off the amount of drugs? What scheme do you use? I guess sort of your you know dosing regimen. Is there a maximum amount of days uh, that you use ACP for that you wouldn't exceed? Um, I don't actually use aspirin, I've got to say. I do use sedlin, Um, But yeah, what's your take on those two drugs, Kathy? So my take on that is if you look at Nicola's paper where it showed an improved survival with um, ACP, um, well... I be, it's not due to vasodilation. I'm sorry, Lucy. It's not. Yeah, it's, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm glad to be proven wrong. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It has been shown in experiments. It doesn't actually affect it within the hoof. It does outside of the hoof, but not within the hoof. Yeah. So the main reason it's doing is because they're sedating the horse. So the dose, it's going to calm the horse down. You know, some people treat laminitis by lowering the roof. When I worked at Sydney University many, many years ago, we had a, a sand pen with a low roof for treating our laminitic so they were forced to lie down. Mm. <laughs> things kind of barbaric now but that's what we had um and so you want them to be calm not walk too much and this is for the really you know the acute laminitic it settles them down lowers their stress hormones everything's you know so the dose is really easy when they're nicely sedated <laughs> and so that's um 
I think that's, everybody that's... knows how to do that. As yeah. far as aspirin's concerned, I've always been a bit, t I mean, I have used a lot of aspirin when I was in racetrack practice, we used to use a lot, but, um, and the dose is quite, can be quite high because it's got a really short half-life. The main reason you'd use aspirin is if you're considering a sort of thrombotic or that sort of pathophysiology. That's not the case with endocrine. So I would, I don't like mixing my non-steroidals because you can actually get to um, uh, toxic zones more quickly than if you just use straight bute or straight, you know, um, uh, meloxicam or whatever other non-steroidal you're using. So, so I, yeah, I wouldn't have a lot. I, I just, if you can, I mean, there's no problems with using aspirin, but I wouldn't use it as, I don't think it's a good analgesic because it just doesn't have the, the, um, the duration of action. It's, it's half-life is too short. So if you, if you're using it, don't use it as an analgesic. If you're using it as a, um, anti-thrombotic well that's the wrong you'd only use that for your inflammatory laminitis anyway and then because it permanently um, acetylates the cox enzyme you would only give it once and then you'd go on with your flinixin or whatever because you're talking about inflammatory laminitis you would not use it for a endocrine laminitis yeah that makes sense? that's good yeah yeah that makes total sense next one is a, is a really good one are you advising we shouldn't be doing trh stimulation tests I believe they're unnecessary. Yes. <laughs> Very easy answer there. <laughs> um, next one. What kind of frog pad do you have good experiences with? Is the lily pad something you would use or recommend? Oh, oh, oh my favorite is this CJM Soul Supports. You know those beanie bags that you have that you kind of have those wheat bags that you have that you heat up in the microwave and you put on your back. Have you seen them? The DJM yeah. Soul Supports. Yeah. They're like all those beanie baby um, like soft toys that you have, yeah. and they feel really nice. So they look, they feel like that, but they they set. So you take them out and you, and, and you um and you wet you wet them. I'm sure I can't remember. I've done it for a while now. You wet them, but then then they mold into the bottom of the hoof, and you can do it. And then the, then you stand the horse on them. They set, and then you've and then they're removable. So they're like lily pads that you can take them off, wash them, put them back on again. Um, and I've I've had quite good. And you just sort of they, they've got a re really good website, and you can watch the video on how to do it. And you mold them so that they I don't know if you can see me so that you kind of can build up the heel just a little bit. And they're my favourite one. But uh, what's your favourite, Lucy? Yeah, I've got to say, I, I sometimes let the farrier help with this situation. We we certainly use the lily the lily pads. Um, but actually, I also am a big fan of using sand or conforming bedding. You know, I, I'm a great believer, actually, in trying to see what the horse tolerates best. And I certainly find that when I start strapping things onto their feet, whether that's pads or clogs or what, you know, whatever we're doing at the time, some of these horses get worse. And, yeah. you know, I'm there back again, taking them off and the clients get frustrated. So I have a lot more, this is very anecdotal, a lot more success, I find, with deep bedding, um, giving them an option of some sort of sand area, sometimes in the corner of the stable, for instance, where they wouldn't have had bedding normally at the front or wherever. I'll, I'll get them to put some builder sand down. And and it's funny, the horses will kind of choose where to stand um, and sometimes find their own comfort. But but if I'm going to put pads on, yeah, we, we tend to use the lily pads. Um, but I, I do know the supports you're talking about, yeah. Cathy. And those, they do those DJM ones are good, but they are like £25 just to you, a pop. So they're going to be yeah. expensive. And you're right, sometimes you can put them on. So they would be probably more the stabilised case. And I was just yeah. going to add one thing. We've had some horses referred to us where they've just literally strapped 
a roll of, of cotton or uh, Gamgee or something around the heel just as a short-term uh, measure. And some horses are, are amazingly comfortable in that as well to cross the sort of a, the back of the heels as well. So if you're stuck with something, that can be quite useful. It's obviously not going to last very long. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Next question is, does steamed hay do any good? And can you soak haylage safely? Can't soak haylage safely because it's um, um, it's fermented, um, first of all. And second, and all you're going to do is increase the, the fermentation. So haylage actually has lower sugar than, um, than hay. So to get that anemic response that I showed you, it's going to be the fermentation products that are inducing it. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the last thing you want to do is maximize those. So no, don't soak haylage. And steamed hay, it does not drop the sugar. Um, there was a study on it. I can't, I can't remember who's done it, but it doesn't. It does not drop the sugar as um, as much as soaking. So just chuck it in a bucket. It's really simple. And you don't even have to like. Some people like fill up a huge wheelie bin and and make sure it's like covered about twenty times. We had the bucket and half the you know were twenty percent of the. Um, the, the hay net was poking out the top of the bucket. You just dunk it in and pull it out. It's really simple. Don't don't overcomplicate it. Just yeah. stick it in a bucket of water. Yeah. What what that is sufficient, basically. Yeah, as you're saying, yeah. you don't need it's to make better. it more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you exactly. don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to do the wheelie bin. I reckon somebody's going to get injured with the hay stuck down yeah. the net. You know, weighted down the bottom yeah. of a wheelie bin one day. <laughs> I don't want to be the vet involved. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, next one is, um, yeah, sorry, that question was about the aspirin. That was about using it as an as a anti-thrombotic um, yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Yeah. Um, next one is, what? yes, yeah. What drugs should we be using for insulin dysregulation at this current time? Anything or nothing? <laughs> well, Lucy and I, I think, agree on this one. The drug is hard work and uh, excellent client communication. Um, I don't know... I don't know, Sarah's here. I don't know if um, Tamsin's poster has been published yet, but I just love it. I mean, is it been published now on Viva? It's a, her poster, it's been... I'm, not, I'm, her poster I'm not sure about. We've got um, a... Um, it's really good. It's what the client, what you say yes. to the client, yeah. what the client hears. Yeah, yeah, that is. It's on our obesity page on the Beaver website. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. So Tamsin Pato has worked at Liverpool for some time with us and been doing sociological research and she started off as a linguist actually she's absolutely amazing and and yeah it's it, um so when uh, i did the treatment of metabolic syndrome case series and interestingly john Keane was doing a similar one pretty much at the same time and ruth morgan put us together and we published our cases together we were both puritans and refused to use any drugs so we showed really good responses without any drugs at all so which drugs should you use I mean, I hear there are people that swear by metformin. Um, I just, honestly, I've been so much of a period and I don't have enough experience with it. So, and the evidence doesn't really stack up very well for it at all. Um, why bother stopping glucose being absorbed from the gut when you can just feed a low glycemic feed? Um, I'm being controversial, aren't I? Good. No, but I think that's that's a very good point, Kathy. That is, <laughs> what, why are we trying to stop its absorption if you can just re remove it easily enough? Yeah. To that degree, yeah. at least from the diet, yeah, from consumption. I mean, to be fair, maybe the first time you let a horse out onto lush pasture, if you were silly enough to do that after just recovered from laminitis, you might want to shove it full of metformin before you did so. But 
and maybe you want to do it every day maybe the owner gets happy with that and some I, I know some vets that swear by it that swear that they've dieted and it's not till they added the metformin that the horse ran up so I, that you know did well so if you're comfortable using it and it, it's worked well for you go ahead and use it there will be the the SGL2 inhibitors are, are basically glucose wasting renal glucose absorption inhibitors um, they have been shown to improve insulinemia. I think that to induce glucosuria, they haven't had cystitis or anything, but I think it should be considered a short-term thing. Though, mm. so in fact, it'd almost be like a double whammy. You feed a horse at low glycemic diet, or if you couldn't feed at a low glycemic diet and glucose waste it, you'll drop insulin fairly quickly. But I would think of those things not as a permanent treatment because SGLT1 isn't the only glucose uptake um, uh, enzyme and, and there will be others. So, or um, I don't think it's called an enzyme, but anyway, whatever it is, um, molecules. <laughs> There's SGLT2, SGLT1, which is usually upregulated after you inhibit SGLT2, although it has a relatively small role in the kidney. And actually SGLT2 has been shown to be really safe in people because it doesn't have that complete effect probably because it does upregulate so it is actually reasonably safe um but it's not on the market yet which I, I suspect it will be you know the research that's coming in looks pretty good um but i wouldn't use it as a as a as an excuse it's just gonna i, I would use it more for when they have laminitis mm -hmm. and you just want to get that insulinemic that hyperinsulinemia back down again because you know it's that hyperinsulinemia that's stretching those cells and killing the lamellae you have to get that down as quickly as possible. I think soaked hay does a great job because I've seen it, you know, from yeah. Harry's research, but but they would probably help as well. Or if you couldn't get access to soaked hay or if you had a silly horse that was wouldn't eat it. And, and there are some horses that won't, even little fatties. And, um, and they will get stressed if they're hungry. So don't starve them. <laughs> and if yeah. that was the case, that'd be a perfect candidate for that stuff. Yeah, good point. Um, we've got a couple of really good questions about the sort of more mechanical stuff and the more sort of um, exercise stuff. So the first one is, what are your thoughts on removing shoes or nailing shoes on when you've got an acute laminitic? You know, how much should you oh, be yeah. fiddling around with that sort of stuff while they're very painful? I think everybody in the audience would probably have as much experience in that as me because it's such a case-by-case -case basis, isn't it? You know, you have some horses that just can't cope and other horses that seem to be fine. I think it probably in the endocrine case, it probably depends on the chronicity of the case. You know, if you've got a bunch of dead lamellae and it's not, nothing's moving rapidly in, in an old, you know, in some of these hideous radiographs that we show, it probably is as right as rain to pull the shoe off. Whereas if you've got an acute one that's often radiographically completely normal, but the pain is so acute, they're not going to let you anywhere near it. So it's, I, I don't think there's a right and wrong answer to that. Lucy, do you have a? No, no, I'm the same. I, I, I kind of go very much on visuals. I just think, is that toe really long? Are we doing massive amounts of leverage on an already upset lamina? You know, do we need to get that shoe off or that toe back, whatever it is? And if we have to, then we do. Um, you know, if that requires sedation, blocking, whatever, we have to get those feet better mechanically, biomechanically. Um, but if the feet are acceptable, you know, particularly with a horse that is being managed but is still painful, then I certainly wouldn't be rushing to try and do anything sort of heroic with the feet. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'd, I'd be taking that on a very case-by-case -case basis yeah. for sure. And that um, is one place where things like DJM products go really well or, or any of your um, putties and things because you can yeah. pack them in a shod horse, horse as much as you can yeah. do a barefoot one. So yeah. yeah, you can and you can manage the mechanics with them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
Um, next one is how soon do you start exercise with your laminitics? Now that is a very good question yeah, that we're often yeah. asked. No, well, I do have a little, I have a little um, equation that I use. Well, it's not really an equation because I don't like equations. Nobody does. So basically I think I usually err on the side of caution. Now, if you've got x-rays, it's a bit easier. So the first rule is really simple. If you've got um, radio lucency, don't exercise. That's just the way it is. You can't require it, you know, you because you've got necrotic lamellae. What's holding it up? Nothing. So radiolucency is a no-no, unless it's an obvious radiolucency in the, you know, distal portion of the hoof wall and you know it's growing out in the top of it. You think you'll be stable enough or you do it very carefully. But anyway, the next thing is, is don't judge it unless you can get the animal off butte. Because if you try to charge exercise and they're on two grams of butte, <laughs> day you're you're kidding yourself yeah. um and you know you just got to understand the way i like to think of it actually i've got my hairband here is the lamellae the actual this i actually have another side which is people don't they think they don't understand how insulin causes laminitis and my answer is yes they do but most people just don't understand how it causes laminitis but we won't go there i've corrected a lot of it on that because a lot of people we even write in papers oh we just don't know how it causes it yeah we do it stretches the lamellae so you know how you have your hairband and after a while it's no use anymore my one's actually got a little dodgy bit there it's exactly <laughs> what happens to the lamellae in the in the chronic laminitic and you, you know you start stretching it and then it just doesn't come back into shape anymore you know this used to be this big and now it's this big <laughs> And that's what they look like. And the, and the same thing with, um, but then in the acute, acute case or the worst case and, or the one that's been walk, walking or um, uh, is, is mechanically challenged, then you can break those lamellae as well. And some of them will break quickly and they're the ones that are the, the acutely painful or really um, likely to founder and, and pop through the prolapse soul or anything like that. But um, the, the long and the short of it is be very careful and cautious. So off butte and grade one laminitis. That's my that's my equation. Yeah, and I, I totally I, I back that up from my own first opinion and experiences. The really depressing cases I can think of are the ones where the owners have gone, he's better. I went and long reined him or lunged him or turned him out in the paddock or the arena or something. And you know, these horses literally canter off across the paddock yeah. on butte and paracetamol and you know, next thing they're, they're like walking out their feet, you know, mm. so I think we've got to, that's something I have a very strict conversation with early on in the case, which is do not exercise this horse, do not take it out walking, do not take it anywhere until I say we are safe to do so, because I think you're right with all the pain relief we give them, the horses mm -hmm. start to look really comfortable and much brighter and much happier. And it's very easy for those owners to suddenly go, brilliant, back to normal. <laughs> and the first phone call you get is he's been in this paddock and you're like no. <laughs> so i think that's that's a really big communication thing there i mean if they do exercise we do like if it's soft and they've got that soul support when they're exercising so in the menage in the on soft ground yeah. you know a bit of gentle walking and then when you start do start on soft ground of course yeah. i mean it's not just the rocks that hurt them because they're so soul, soul sensitivity yeah i think it's the whole sort of biomechanics of having a, a broad surface area as well yeah conforming surface as well isn't it yeah i think um the one thing that probably confuses people that i often hear is that you know somewhere in the distant past i suppose that we were told to get these horses exercising as soon as possible you know that was the kind of yeah. get their metabolism going that yeah. sort of but that was the argument wasn't it so i think yeah. some owners are still clung to that in that we need yeah. to get this horse moving as soon as possible 
Yeah, there's no forcing of exercise of a laminitic people. <laughs> no, it's a bit like walking colics, isn't it? It's kind of like, you know, everyone sort of thought that was what we had to do, but I don't mm. think there's evidence to support doing it, is there? No. Mm. The... Next one. Um, sorry, we've got a couple more questions, I think, Kathy. Is I have a client that likes to increase her horse's pergolide dose during the acute laminitic flare-up and she swears it makes a difference. Is there any evidence to support this? Um, well... Well, as I said, I, I, I have the evidence that says that if the horse has got PPID and insulin dysregulation, it's going to have worse or higher insulinemia, higher hyperinsulinemia than a horse that doesn't. So in an, so it's in acute bout of laminitis. So first of all, it's more stressed. Um, so you're going to have things pushing things over the edge. You're going to be gluconeogenic and insulin um, resistance from the uh, stress of being in pain. Um, so I don't think there's any problems with that at all. Um, the only thing I must admit, um, many, many years ago, not many of you will remember, I, I published a paper on trilostane, which is actually a cortisol inhibitor. And although it was never really, I mean, it was never really going to be the treatment for PPID. It's like adiponectin. It's just not quite there. It's, not, it's an indirect one. Um, but actually, in cases of stress, that is one time that I would add trilostane to pergolide. And that might be even... But pergolide is possibly more cost effective. So whatever she thinks is a fair thing. But I have advised very, you know, vets in the past if they've got access to it. Um, I know Dickie quite likes to use it from time to time. If you've got that flare up in the PPID horse, why not drop the cortisol out of the equation just for a couple of weeks and then go back, go, go back. That's another option anyway. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not something I've sort of thought of before, but it does make sense now you said it. Um, just two more questions on the board, which I think we'll, we'll then just do those and we'll end there because it's getting late. One is someone just re really wanting confirmation that, that haylage is not to be fed, right? So when you get these clients that say, I can't feed hay, maybe the horse has, you know, RAO or whatever, um, hay allergy, we, we yeah. can only feed haylage. What do, you, what do you say to those people? So what I say to those people is exactly what I said in my talk. The question is, is can my horse go on pasture? Is what I'm feeding appropriate? Why don't you get them to feed the haylage and take a sample of insulin two hours later? Don't trust Harry's results. Maybe his ponies are weird. Here's his ponies. Maybe they're weird. But you can answer that question very, very easily. Okay, Mrs. Jones, I'll come in two hours after your horse has had its morning feed, make sure it gets a good amount of haylage, and I'll measure how that insulin's going. It may be the case that that horse is able to cope with haylage. I mean, there's quite a big error bars here, and some of these horses were shocking, and some of these horses weren't so bad. So why not just test it? That answers your question. You've actually wonderful question because you've actually vindicated my whole talk thank you yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant and would you say one one day one test is enough to reassure you that that Absolutely. horse is yeah yeah Absolutely. yeah there's consistency enough yeah insulin's not going to bounce around it's not got a sensitive and specificity issue it's either going to be unless you've got a dodgy lab but you know send it to a proper lab. don't do it on your idex machine in-house i'm sorry just send it to a proper lab, send it to a proper lab. <laughs> not unless you've got a really nice nurse who qas it all the time send it away if you're doing something like that yeah send it away yeah. In, the insulin's not you don't have to worry about that sensitive specificity business just yeah cool and then the last question which is kind of we've covered already but you know I, we may as well answer it it's, it's worth mm -hmm. worth doing with regard to the acp at uni they teach you of it as sedation and so laying down more but also for its vasodilation effects which increases oxygen transport to the lamellae mm -hmm. is this outdated goes uh, well with what i was saying in my talk because you know 
I'm still clinging to that clearly. <laughs> yep. Steve Adair, yeah. you can look him up. A-D-A-I-R-A-C-P in the whole. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's what he just. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Out of date. Yeah. Fine. That I've read anyway. So yeah. yeah, but it doesn't really matter. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with ACP. I think I, I think it's a great drug and I think you know it's a long acting sedative what more could you ask for in a horse that's in agony yeah. and an owner that wants to probably exercise it sooner than it should your yeah. headache gets sedated you know I mean let's not get confused about whether or not it slightly oxygenates the lamellae or not it's not the be all and end all but it's no it's not going to be bad and um you know it, that's that's a small that's a bit of small detail that we don't need to worry about and I, you know um, maybe that maybe there's something they know that I don't know. Maybe your university lecturers or researchers in that area and did their own studies in it. You know, some of the yeah. stuff I give you has has been unpublished, like the um, uh, the the ACTH. We've just done a systematic review on the ACTH diagnostic uh, capabilities, which is why I was so confident saying we are more likely to miss a case than overdiagnose a case. So yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. No, that, that's what this is for. That's what these discussions are for. It's perfect. Well, I think we we're good to end there. I mean, Sarah, if you're still online, you know, if you if, if you've got something to say, then please do come and join us. But you know, I think that was so helpful from a first opinion practitioner's view. That was just what I want to hear. I want to know that I'm, you know, doing the right thing for these cases and that with all the publications that go out there and that we read or don't read. Um, read you half know, of and then forget. Yeah, exactly. And also <laughs> read and don't understand, you know, if yes, I'm being honest. That too. So, um, <laughs> read with a cup of coffee when I'm not 100% concentrating. Yeah, yeah. And it just makes you feel like you've done a little bit of CPD there, but actually well, <laughs> you've not, not changed what you do. But this is the kind of s summary that we want from someone like you that, that helps us sort of formulate a really practical plan with that case that we might see mm. tomorrow. Um, yeah. It needs to be practical. That's what I'm. That's what I'm, I'm really, really pleased you say that, Lucy. I hope that's what people got out of it. I yeah. want it to be practical. I want endocrine testing to be easy for people because yeah. I think it will help you and the ponies. And yeah, the and we've, I got enough, we've got enough challenges with the owners and the finances <laughs> and the <laughs> compliance, and you know we need to make the bit that we can do, you know, clinically. We need to make it as simple as we can so that we can we can actually get people to accept it and do it. I do love the idea of having a just testing for the insulin to see yeah. whether you think it's safe to turn out yeah. or whether it's yeah. actually is it okay? Too much or yeah, too little. just that's going to be my answer from now yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> how many too. times have you argued with a client about something and then you could have just answered it by giving them the evidence? So that's yeah. it's so. I that's mean, it's so genius. Whatever, yeah, yeah, I love it. This episode of Beaver Pod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.